Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and every so often I like to step back in front of the microphone. I have a different role at the network right now, so I don't do many interviews, but I uh, see a book, a book crosses my desk that catches my eye, and I think, you know, I'd like to talk to that person. And so it was with Bob Brody's book, Playing Catch with Strangers, a family guy reluctantly comes of age, because I'm a family guy who reluctantly comes of age, so I I hate to say this because it's kind of a cliche, Bob, you had me at the title. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Marshall. Absolutely. My pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, just a few words? Yes. I... I um I'm a I uh, I'm married for 39 years to uh uh to a wonderful woman named Elvira. I have uh, a son Michael, a daughter Caroline. I live in Queens. Uh I'm 66 years old. I work uh as a as a public relations professional, but I prefer to say that I'm a writer masquerading as a PR advisor. Um, I've been working in PR for 27 years now, but I've kept writing on the side the whole time because uh, I'm just unable to stop. And uh, I still, believe it or not, uh, get out there and and play basketball. Um, Nowadays with kids one-third my age, one-fourth my age, and uh, it's still fun, and I'm going to keep going until I have to stop. Playing catch with strangers, yes. Um, we hear Queens right behind you, actually. This happens every time we interview someone in New York, New York City. <laughs> the sound of sirens is just, uh, it's like the music of New York City. It really yeah, is. I, I it, it, Queens never goes quiet, <laughs> exactly. uh, like the city. And uh, it's, it's a big difference uh, uh, from other places. Oh, I've, it is. I've, yeah, there's it no. is. I mean, I just uh, a few weeks ago came back from Italy, which is where my daughter lives, and my wife spends much of the year. And uh, they're they're in a small town in southern Italy, and it uh, it's just it's just peaceful. It's just slower. It's uh, it's people say hello to each other on the street. It's a it's small town life, as I imagine you find it in the United States too, and as I remember it from my boyhood. Um, growing up in the New Jersey suburbs. so Yeah, that's right. I mean, I live in uh, western Massachusetts, and, uh, you know, the noisiest things here, actually, the birds are really loud. These sparrows <laughs> are really loud in the morning here in western Massachusetts. So anyway, let me ask the traditional first question on the New Books Network, and I'm always interested in this, and I know the readers are too. Why did you write Playing Catch with Strangers? Why did you write this book? Well, I might as well confess that I never intended to. Some, <laughs> some, some ten years ago, uh, 
somebody I worked with had seen an essay of mine that I had published and said, you should do a book. And by that point, I had only recently turned back seriously to doing essays. And so maybe I had 10 under my belt, 15 under my belt. And I thought, well, okay, I appreciate the idea, but do I have a book in me? Do I have enough material for a book? Um, and I appreciated her her ambitions on my behalf. Um, but as the years went along, I published more essays, and I was writing about my mother and about my father and about our kids and about my wife. And um, eventually I realized that piecemeal I had pretty much written a memoir. And so that's how it came about, almost by accident, if you will, um, in that I had written these pieces and decided, I think these pieces can be collected and maybe trimmed here and there and fused together over there and uh, made to fit so that it would all be of a piece, more or less, um, and get it in some semblance of chronological order so that it takes me from early boyhood uh, right up through the present day. And so that's that's how it came together. And uh, I was lucky enough to find a publisher, Heliotrope Books, um, whose editor uh, b- b- loved the idea and, and uh, worked with me on bringing it all together so that we could decide what belonged in the book, what should be left out. I had published a, a, quite a few essays, and, and so some we left out because they were, they were just a, a poor fit, and, uh, and then others were extended. And I, and I wrote a, a, some new material as well just to sort of spackle in in places. Um, and so ideally, it, uh, it, it came together. Spackle. That's a great metaphor for anyone who's <laughs> done any spackling, and I've done a lot of it. <laughs> but that's exactly it. That's a great metaphor, Bob. Good one. Uh, I'm going to steal that without attribution. Uh, feel <laughs> free. <laughs> okay. Because I have no life rights. So. <laughs> All right. So uh, one of the things I mentioned in the pre-interview, we were talking that I very much admire about the book, that it's written in, um, I would call it an episodic style. I suppose a literary critic might say that it's in vignettes. I don't know vignettes, but that really what you do is you tell a series of stories, short stories. So this is a result of the fact that it's written on the basis of a bunch of separate essays. Is that right? That's largely the case, yes. Mm-hmm. I see, yeah. Well, exactly it's, right. It's lovely. So it, I mean, the book is, is uh, I mean, we're calling it a memoir, and it is a memoir. Um, the agent I work with suggested we call it a memoir in essays. Mm-hmm. So I guess we could... Uh, I guess split hairs over it, but uh, my hope is that it is that it reads as a as a memoir. And because of the way it's broken up, because the different pieces have titles, maybe it feels a little bit like a collection of essays. And it, to a certain extent, it, it's that too. But uh, but it's brought together for a single purpose. Everything is tried. I tried to tried, tried to unify everything. Well, one very nice thing about it is you can pretty much open any page and find one of these essays or vignettes or episodes, and you can read it. And you, mm-hmm. you don't have to read the thing the whole way through if you don't want at that point. And I know that when I was reviewing it earlier, I my eye was being caught by ones that I had seen when I read it a while ago. So that's a very good, I think I, I like this style very much because each one is a kind of self-contained thought. 
if I can put it that way, in the montane kind of way of an essay. So that's all very good. So I'm trying to think how to approach the book. And it is a memoir. It does go chronologically through your life. Maybe one way to do it would be for you to highlight for the readers some of the essays or moments or vignettes that were of particular moment to you that are in the book. And we can start with your childhood. You're, I love this. You're Bob Brody from the Bronx. <laughs> Isn't that that's right. right. Yeah, see, isn't that great? Full <laughs> alliteration. Yes, that's lovely. So maybe you could start by talking about your childhood. Sure. Well, I mean, uh, I guess I have to offer up a disclaimer because I know it sounds dramatic to say that I'm from the Bronx, and I am proud to say I'm from the Bronx, but I only lived there for two and a half years, the first two and a half years of my life. My parents had an apartment uh, close to Yankee Stadium on uh, Sheridan Avenue, and uh, so I have absolutely no memories, no conscious memories of, of living in the Bronx. Uh, we, we were part of that uh, great migration uh, to, to the suburbs that, uh, that took place in the early 1950s, and people went to New Jersey, people went out to Long Island, and it was people from the Bronx and people from Brooklyn. It was people who lived in apartments and wanted houses, and so... We settled in a in a house in a town called Fairlawn in Bergen County, New Jersey, um, which is where I spent my boyhood. Mm-hmm. And um, my my childhood was marked as as much as anything else by um, my upbringing uh, uh, with with two parents who happened to be deaf. Mm-hmm. And so that was a challenge. It uh, it uh, I needed to adapt to that. It was a source of uh, all kinds of um, uh, struggle for for both me and for my parents. Uh, I mean, at the very least, um, my mother, um, who who is profoundly deaf and who I'm happy to say is was 90 years old the other day. Um, she uh, she became uh, she was stricken with spinal meningitis at the age of one. And it left her uh, profoundly deaf for life. And so I, I kind of, I mean, I went through my childhood um, uh, making phone calls for her to her mother and to her brother and to others. I was kind of a go-between and um, felt self-conscious when my friends came over and, and met her because she sounded like a deaf person with the sort of voice that you often hear uh, at on a, in a deaf person. And, um, I, I spent, I guess a lot of my childhood feeling is just sad for her. Uh, just this unbearable sorrow, uh, that, that she had suffered this, uh, this injustice. Um, and so I, I, I don't mean to get, uh, too psychiatric here, but, um, but that was, that really, I think growing up with deaf parents uh, has to have defined me as 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 much as as much as anything else, and I think really is connected. I do think there's a something of a cause and effect relationship between my growing up with deaf parents and my my wanting to be a writer. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I found fascinating in the book, and if I think I remember correctly, is that your parents met at a was it a dance or a meeting or for deaf people. That's right. That's right. right. Such things existed. Yes. Yes. Uh, There was. Yeah. There was a 
society, and they were at a hotel, and it was a party, and my mother, my father, my future father saw my future mother uh, across the room, and I guess it was the Hollywood story. He he turned to a friend of his and said, uh, I'm going to marry that girl. Wow. I just like it. I found out there were such things from your book, and I'm like, America, what a wonderful place. <laughs> we can One story that. I got. Go ahead. Exactly. One one story I, I was lucky enough uh, somehow to have gotten from my parents is this. Um, when my father was courting my mother, he, he lived in Newark and she lived in the Bronx. And one day he decided to visit her without her knowing about it. She had no idea he was coming. And he uh, tried to get into the building where she lived on the Grand Concourse in uh, in the Bronx. But my mother was home alone. There was nobody there to hear the doorbell. There was nobody there to, to hear anything. So um, so my father uh, decided that um, to, to climb the fire escape. Right. And he climbed the fire escape uh, up to her window and opened the window and climbed into the room. And, and uh, my mother saw him. And the reason he, he explained, the reason he did what he did was that he wanted to see her mm-hmm. and so uh so i imagine she 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 was quite shocked but i imagine she said to herself i, I guess i guess he's serious mm-hmm. now they came from kind of different worlds did they not they did. My um, the, my my mother uh, grew up uh, with a father who was who. Uh, I mean, my my grandfather had had gone to college in the 1920s. He became a certified public accountant, and he was a businessman. He had an office on 42nd Street, so he lived a professional life, and he went to work in a suit every day. Um, my father, on the other hand, um, his father was, left school uh, at the age of uh, 13 or 14. He came to the United States by himself um, and From... uh, worked, worked at any job he could find and eventually brought over 14 relatives. Uh, and where, housed... where did they come from, remind me? Uh, they were from Russia mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, Austria. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, and my and my my other grandfather, he was a saloon keeper. He was a saloon keeper, and then he bought his own saloon, and then he was lucky enough to make friends with someone who invested in real estate, and he began began to rest, uh, invest in real estate, and became very comfortable. Um, but uh, there was there was a there was a gap in education, and there was a, a certain gap in style. I mean, growing up in Newark is a whole lot different from growing up in in New York City. My maternal grandparents, um, at least later in life anyway, as I remember, they they went to the opera and my grandmother took me to museums. Um, And so there there was a sort of cultural difference too. And one one side is Jewish and the other is Catholic? Is that right? No, no. They they were, everybody was Jewish. Okay. Um, the difference uh, that you might be thinking about is that my wife was raised as a Catholic. Oh yes, okay. Right. And yeah. uh, and uh, so uh, yes, so so that's uh, and and we we've managed to bridge that divide, such as it is. Well, you know, in your story, I mean, you mentioned this a little earlier, is very typical of a certain group of people. They're not like my. I'm from Kansas originally, and um, part of my family 
came to the United States from, well, it wasn't the United States at the time, they came to the colonies from England in the 18th century, and then the other part came from Germany in the 19th century and went to Ohio, and we ended up in the Midwest. But your story is very, you know, it's typical is not the right word, but it's a, it's a, it's a kind of classic American story of immigrants who moved to the United States they come, they live in the Bronx. And by the way, this is, I just was reading about, this is before the Bronx was burning, if you remember the Cosell line. This was the kind of stable, upwardly mobile Bronx that I, I don't know if it even exists anymore. But, and then they moved to the suburbs, which is, again, a very kind of typical, upwardly mobile thing to do. And then, the, and then what I also like is the things that you do as a teenager, which are things that, you know, again, are kind of, they're symbolic of assimilation, if I can put it that way. You play basketball and you play in a rock band. I did both those things. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I mean, can you, I, yeah. Can you talk I a little bit about I think I needed that? to become an adult before I could look back and realize just how all-American my boyhood was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I certainly had no idea while I was growing up that I was doing what lots of boys across the United States in the 1950s and 1960s were doing, and that was getting together to play with friends and play stickball and yeah. go to makeout parties and right, right. wonder what girls were all about. And um, Yeah, I was get- doing the same thing. I was doing the same thing in Kansas. I really was. And, and I, I don't know about you, but in my adulthood, I'm 56, and I, um, I look back on my childhood, and I think that it was pretty wonderful, actually, that I yes. was just very lucky at the time. I hated everyone. <laughs> but, I, yeah, we're we're definitely simpatico on that score. Uh, I I I doubt I thought of my childhood as particularly wonderful as I was going through it. It certainly had its terrific moments. There were there were wonderful highlights. I would put. Uh, girls and sports at the very top of that list. Right, yeah. uh, I wish I could say that I felt the same about school um, or about having to do anything that I had to do, but um, but uh, there, there was a, there was a lot to recommend it. But I, I look back on it now, and I and I uh, it's I guess we now have the opportunity to to deign it um, a, a good childhood. Um, I mean, you just figure that whatever it took to get you where you are now, okay, that's that's what it took. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. I was just rereading Siddhartha, and uh, that's pretty much what happens to Siddhartha. He has to go through all this stuff in his search for adulthood, or I don't know what he was looking for. But in any event, so you play a, a you, you you play the drums. Is that right? The drums, as I recall correctly, the drums. And yes. we were in a band, and it was very short lived. I guess I lacked the commitment or the leadership ability to keep us together, but we had a few practices and there were two cool. guitarists. They were wonderful and I just loved it. And so we briefly had these fantasies about being uh, who, the Dave Clark Five, yeah. any, yeah. the Beach Boys, we, we would take anything. Yeah, everybody um, had those fantasies. Well, I don't know about everybody, but I certainly had them as well. And then the other thing which really sticks with you is basketball. Can you talk about your introduction to that and... Yeah, my my father, uh, happily enough, and I think this happened 
purely by chance. I doubt I asked for it. My father put up a a, a a hoop in our in our driveway. He put up a pole. I remember he planted the pole in the in the cement, and it took some doing. And it was regulation height. And he put up a a backboard with a rim, and it was very official. And he measured it, and it was ten feet high. And so, and I was eight years old, and so uh, I started to shoot around. And my father occasionally would shoot around with me. Um, he, he had uh, enjoyed sports as a as a young man himself, and and so um, and I, I just I just took to it. I was I was smitten with basketball. I was I just and I wanted to get good at it. And for a long time, I was anything but good at it. I was skinny. I was short. I was uh, <laughs> was I was uh, wondering if guys were ever going to pass me the ball, or for that matter, just pick me to to get in a game. And, uh, and so I just, I just kept at it. Um, and it was really only around maybe my early twenties that I was finally good enough probably to make the high school team that I wanted to make. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a, a late bloomer in that respect, but, um, but I'm, I'm happy to, uh, yeah, I'm, I just, uh, basketball came to be something that, uh, that I wanted to, I wanted to master. It was just, it was just important to me to, to be good at something. And so it became a refuge of sorts for me. It became a place of, I mean, the courts were a place where I could go and, uh, practice something and try to get good at it so that I could feel, important and, uh, and accomplished and, um, and yeah, so I, I, kept I, me in good stead. I, I really appreciate your use of the word refuge because for so many years in my own life, I played basketball from very young and age and, and, um, and, can, and essentially I retired about 10 years ago, I think when my kids were first born and, uh, I played three or four times a week my whole life and it really was a refuge. It was someplace I could go where I knew what to do and I was accomplished at it and I, I had respect and it had drama. And it, 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 for a short period of time, my troubles ceased. I don't know if that's quite the right word. It was, they were replaced with other troubles. <laughs> yeah, I know so, exactly what yeah. you're and there And there's a, there's, a, there's a chapter in the book about playing stickball uh, I think it's called All the Time in the World, and it's about how when you were playing stickball as a kid, nothing else mattered. I mean, the, right. the rest of the world just dropped away. Right. And that still is part of the appeal of playing any sport, whether it's – and I, I like to play tennis a lot now, too. I mean, when that ball is coming at you, you have no time to think about uh, anything else. And – um, so you're just singularly focused and it, it gets you out of your, out of your own head and, um, and has that, that therapeutic value. And it's, and it's fun. I mean, it's fun to move around. It's fun to run. It's fun to chase after a ball and, and try to score. So, uh, I mean, once the fun goes out of it, I'm done, but, yeah, but no, the, that's fun, exactly right. the fun has yet to go out of it. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I think you put that very well, and, and I think one of the great blessings in my life is the fact that I picked up a sport that I could play for almost all of my life. And as I say, I may still go back and play. I'm still pretty athletic, but I don't have time to do it now. But 
many, many times when I was low or I didn't know what to do, I could just retreat, so to say, to the court and I knew just what to do. And time would stop and my troubles would go away. And as I say, they would be replaced by other troubles. Like, why is that guy dribbling? <laughs> <laughs> right. He's passable. Yes, right. Please, you cannot bring the ball up. You cannot dribble. Um, so, so, yeah, they're replaced by other troubles. But I just consider that one of my great... I don't know if, you know, I, 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 I did it... Did it stunt my maturity a little bit? I suppose it did in a way because I did tend to act in an immature way sometimes out there. But on the other hand, it did give me a great refuge. But in, in the case, let's get back to your life. Your life did go on. And uh, as a, another question I wanted to, or thing I wanted to talk about is you end up in New York City uh, in the 70s. Um, 1975, you moved there in your first apartment. Is that right? Yes, that's what, right. What was it? Can you tell a few stories from that period? You have one particularly dramatic one, so sure. Well, I mean, I I had been living at home, and one day my father came by and asked me how my search for a job was going. I was still looking for my first job after after college, and I have to admit, I had been I I, I could have been looking harder than I was. Uh, I guess I I lacked a certain incentive. Uh, there I was in New Jersey. I had my own room and um, I was still seeing friends and I was still enjoying myself. But my father said he was going to start charging me rent. And I realized that he was probably sending me a message. <laughs> <laughs> was able to discern that. Uh, really? That's thanks, incredible. I, thanks incredible powers of perception. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I, I got myself an apartment. Uh, I, I had little idea really about which neighborhood I should live in, but I found an apartment on East 7th Street between Avenues A and B. Oh um, it was $150 a month. It was a studio apartment. Uh, it was toward the back of the building on the second floor. And I thought, Okay, I've got I've got my own apartment. My 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 grandparents were absolutely aghast that I had moved into this neighborhood. And I remember one night we took a drive. Uh, uh, they drove me home from their apartment. They were then living on 79th Street and Second Avenue, the Upper East Side. And they were I could just tell from the looks on their faces they were thinking to themselves, Why did Robert, as they called me, why did Robert move here? This is, this is crazy. Why? Because, I mean, in, in the 1970s, it was very funky down there. I mean, it was dangerous yeah. to cross from Tompkins Square Park, where it was just drug dealers, people, people looking to cop drugs, uh, all kinds of violence broke out. I mean, the whole city was just going down the tubes it was on the it was flirting with bankruptcy and uh there were bugs, uh doomsday headlines every day um and the subways were failing and just the whole city was 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 uh, on this um was uh, just uh, sliding into oblivion and so um so i i had this bright idea that i should take this apartment and 5 weeks after i moved into my apartment a, um, I was mugged, and more than that, I was I was stabbed. Um, a guy with a knife came down the hall and and uh, wanted to get into my apartment just as I was carrying my Sunday Times and some groceries. I was about to open the door, and he caught me in uh, in, an, in a compromising position. And um, I, I I said I was not going to let him in, and um, he he managed. Uh, 
to, he poked me with a knife and that managed to persuade me that, <clears throat> that maybe I should let him in. And, uh, luckily the, the damage, uh, that, that he did to me was, was a lot less severe than it could have been. I did go to the hospital. I was in intensive care briefly, but I'm sure that was a precaution. Um, uh, he, he poked me in the chest, but I know he only intended to scare me and he, he succeeded, uh, by every measure in, in doing that. Um, but, but if he had wanted to hurt me, if he had really wanted to hurt me, he certainly could have. Mm-hmm. Um, he just wanted to get in and get, whatever I had that he could take. And so he took my TV, he took my radio. He left me my typewriter because, believe it or not, as we're there, he said to me, you probably need this for your business. Mm-hmm. And at one point he handed me a towel for uh, for my wound because I was bleeding from being stabbed. Um, so it was really uh, an, an unusual incident and um, and certainly uh, marked me and, and made me... I wrote another piece 40 years later. Uh, I wrote about it, um, and it, it was the it was the first time I was I was published in the New York Times. A very exciting milestone. But I wrote about it 40 years later, just to look back and reflect on what it had meant to me, <clears throat> and realize that it really had turned me kind of combative, and that I kind of went through the city with something like a chip on both shoulders and my eye and my, always looking uh, in the rearview mirror to see who might be. It's not that I was some paranoid schizophrenic or anything, but um, let's just say that uh, I, I wanted to be ready for anything. And mm-hmm. if, if it was going to make trouble for me, I was, gonna, I was going to want to be able to make equal trouble for them. And that was actually part of the reason I'm sure I I kept playing basketball because it kept me fit and it kept me ready. Yeah, no, I understand what you mean. Innocence lost in that way. I've never had anything like that happen to me, to be honest with you. But I can only imagine how frightening it it, it must have been. And it was a a time, the 70s, the late 70s, especially in New York, as you say, I mean – there was a lot going on. Son of Sam and the weathermen blowing themselves up and the city is failing and they're not collecting the trash and it's really hot. And I was just reading about all this and I thought this must be absolutely fascinating. You know, and the punk revolution is going on and it just have been, I mean, I, I, I tend to, you know, again, having been in Kansas at the time, I, I looked upon these things as in, I, I guess with um, a certain amount of admiration almost, it must've been just terrifying to be in the middle of it. Well, I mean, it did. It did. Um, it could be entertaining. I, I know that sounds weird to say, but in the apartment uh, building where I lived, uh, there was a young woman who it turned out was a prostitute, and so uh, I certainly uh, was. I mean, growing up in suburban New Jersey, um, I I had no familiarity with with right. uh, suits, much less did I expect to, to, to live in an apartment building with one down the hall. So, mm-hmm. uh, when we actually became friendly and then there was a kid who lived in the building, an eight year old kid who, uh, would, would light, who would light the uh, trash on fire in the, in the incinerator. <laughs> so we kind of, we had a, we had a junior, we had an aspiring pyromaniac on our hands. <laughs> yeah. You can learn about a lot about life in New York city, but you see, you know, the other thing is, is that, you know, many people listening to this might be like, you know, you get stabbed. Moves to New York, moves to the city, gets stabbed, but he stays. I mean, right, you've lived exactly. Lived your whole life. 
right? You know, I just, I, I would, I, I'm much more inclined to chalk it up to naivete than I am any sort of bravery. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I suppose I just did not know any better because honestly, it never occurred to me to move out of New York City just because of that incident. I figured, I guess I figured to the extent that I thought about it at all, that uh, that this is the sort of stuff that can happen, that now that it's happened once, I guess the odds are in my favor that it's never going to happen mm-hmm. again. And so we got that out of the way. And from here on, we'll be in good shape. Mm-hmm. So you go to work and let's talk about you. You get a family pretty quick there. You have a family. Um, can you talk well, about the transition I mean, it, it, uh, I moved into New York City in 75. I met um, my future wife uh, that year. We we uh, became uh, in, engaged, and uh, we got married in 1979. So that's a few years later, and then our first child came along in 1983. So, so it it rolled out over over the course of a few years. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was married at 26, and I was a father at at 31. Mm-hmm. I th- that was probably about par for for my generation, yeah. and. Um, if not a little late in some respects, yeah. uh, and so uh, so we got going, and it was a, it was a totally different life. I mean, there was the life that I lived on my own, and now there was a life uh, uh, that I lived where I had uh, real responsibilities, and it made uh, it made all the difference. And how did you negotiate all that? I mean, you know, one of the themes in the book is about growing up. How did how did it change you when you all of a sudden found all this responsibility? And you know, I know that in my own case. I put all of that off for a very long time because I I really liked college and I wanted my life to be college forever. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah. So go ahead. Could you talk a little bit about that, that maturation process? Cause it's dealt with extensively in the book. Yeah. I think, I think the, the whole concept of needing to be an adult left me kind of gobsmacked because, um, I'd, I'd grown up being quite selfish and, uh, it, believe me, it gives me no pride to say that and and much shame but uh i i grew up i think it's fair to say in a in a somewhat selfish environment where people thought of themselves and uh that applied to to most everyone um and so i so i thought of myself first and above all and uh then then you get married and and it's a whole different uh, dynamic. There's there's another person there, and you realize that you're now living with this person, and need to be able to uh, you you want to make her happy as I wanted to make my wife happy, and um, you realize that uh, that you're 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 now kind of coming up against um, an everyday challenge to to compromise and to uh, to 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 make sure that uh, that somebody else is is happy too and um so that was that took a that took a big adjustment and i have to say that uh it um it i'm sure it took me a while i know that my childhood selfishness carried over into adulthood uh uh for 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 quite a few years um and it took me a while to get the the hang of uh this idea that you needed to 
be responsible, that you needed to listen to other people, that sometimes maybe you needed to behave differently, um, and and that you had to look out for others. And uh, that certainly happened in spades when our when our children came along. Uh, I mean, for a long time. And when I say that I was selfish, I mean that I was also I was just spoiled. I was I was uh, I was I was raised to believe that. Uh, well, I guess I was encouraged to believe that I could kind of get away with anything, and for years I did, and maybe had the m- misbegotten notion that uh, that I could do so forever, um, and uh, and soon eventually learned otherwise. And I think the big turning point for me was when our second child was born. I was 35 years old, 36 years old, um, when Caroline was born. And, um, it just became, I just, it, it just hit me. Okay. We have two kids now. It's, it's time to get serious. And, and so at the age of 35, I developed a viable work ethic. Um, <laughs> that's how long it took me to, to finally get around to it. But I, I, I can say with, some degree with 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 some certainty and and some authority that uh, that work ethic has now uh, kept me in good stead for the last thirty one years. Well, that's good. I'm glad about that. I I can uh, very much identify with what you're talking about. I um, as I said, I, I put off adulthood for a long time, and it is in hindsight because of selfishness. I, d- I didn't really realize it at the time because uh, I just always thought like you know what is best for me. What should I do? And people were asking me what I was going to do, and for me, and you know even my first uh, my first marriage, I was divorced. Um, we had a long relationship, twenty years. Um, I really was very selfish in that relationship. I mean, it was just all about what I was going to do. And it wasn't out of any chauvinism or it wasn't sexist or it wasn't, I don't know, anything like that. It wasn't religious. It was just that what we were going to do was what I was going to do. And it just, it just occurred to me that was the case. And I I didn't, I never really recognized anything different. And, but I look back on it and I think, yeah, it's very selfish. I mean, including right down to playing basketball, which I, you know, wherever we lived, I insisted that we live, you know, someplace close to the gym or I was going to go to the gym this many days a week or, you know, things like that. And it was very, um, what does Marshall want? That was the important thing. What about Marshall's career? What about what Marshall wants to do? And yeah, I look back on it and I had a different sort of turning point in my own life. I won't go into it, but <clears throat> I did, uh, I did straighten up and fly right <clears throat> after a while. So could you tell us a little bit about um, maybe your work experience? How did you, you say you developed a work ethic at a certain moment and and how did that change you? Well, I just, I mean, I buckled down and uh, I, I, uh, I had freelanced for 10 years and I think certainly um, fueled my, my uh, sense of independence, being able to kind of call the, my own shots and be my own boss. Um, but it, I realized that uh, my freelancing was, uh, I was, I was doing okay. I was getting published. I was making some money, but it was nowhere near enough. And then had two children now. And uh, the question was whether my wife was going to keep working or maybe she was going to cut back to four days a week or three days a week. And I just, I mean, I simply started working harder and I got myself a part-time job and then eventually um, a full-time job. And that's when I started working in, in public relations. That was, that was 27 years ago. Right. 
Right. And so it was the realization that you had these responsibilities and that you'd been living this way. That That's really what was the sort of turning point for you. I'm, I'm just interested in how people change in this way. I'm, I'm always curious about personal transformation because people get in ruts and they just tend to stay there. But you didn't do that. I just, I, I, you could, you could almost say I had no choice. I mean, either I was going to flail and flounder and, uh, function as, uh, as a mediocrity, or I was really going to try to excel and I was going to try to do it to make my wife proud of me and to, and to make our kids proud of me and to try to be some kind of a hero, uh, to my family and, and to myself. Um, it was a matter of trying to fulfill my own expectations for myself. I mean, I had grown up with this idea that uh, that maybe I had something special to offer, and um, that that uh, <laughs> had had yet to be borne out um, for 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 many of those yeah, early years of of my adulthood. There were little highlights here and there. Yeah. Um, and, and flickers of promise, but um, but I had yet to really um, show any consistency, and yeah. so I wanted to be able to do with my work and with my family what I had managed to learn to do on the basketball court, namely hit my shots. Right, 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 right. Well, I tell people, you know, about basketball, it's all about role playing. You have to figure out what your role is out there. You know, not everybody's going to be Michael Jordan. But I laughed when, you know. You mentioned the, you, you know, this notion that somehow you have something special to offer because I, I kind of felt that as well. And uh, one of the things I've learned in adulthood that I don't have anything special to offer and I'm really not that different than, I won't speak for you, that I'm just not that different than other people. Um, but I do have something good to offer and that's really enough. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm, there's nothing special about Marshall Poe. I can tell you that for certain. But I do have something good I, to offer, and I can help people. True. And that's a good I, thing. That's enough. Sorry to disagree, but I, I doubt that's true. I honestly <laughs> believe, and I know this sounds like I should be an evangelist or something, but I think everybody has something special. To All right. Offer. Okay. I, I, I will, we, we, we won't belabor the point, but I, I just – I thought that I really – well, okay, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I, but one of the one of the moments in my maturity was realizing the ordinariness of much of what I did, and mm -hmm. and, and really learning, like on basketball, you know, I, I don't bring the ball up because I don't dribble very well, but I'm a very good shooter, so that's kind of my role. I'm a good defensive player; I can do that. But you know, I leave these things to other people, you know, and I actually coach some basketball now and I tell the kids, you know, get the ball to a guard. That's the first thing. Get the ball to a guard. Yeah. And um and you know, it's hard to give the ball up. It's when you're yeah, playing it, catch with it, strangers, it's hard to give it up. You want to keep it. You could apply that all to family life too, because you're talking about role playing. So I mean, here you are, now you're a husband. Yep. So that's different from being a single guy. Yep. And now you're a father. Yep. And that's certainly different from being somebody who has no kids. Yep. And so there's a role to play. And the question is, are you going to measure up? Uh, and are you going to measure up to your satisfaction or, or not? So it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the, the clock is ticking and you better deliver. That's what you know. I think that that is exactly right. So could you talk a little bit about your experience with fatherhood and your relationship with your kids? There's lots in the book about that. Yeah, well, I mean, it was 
just a, an absolute um, revolution in my thinking and a, and a revelation because uh, I, I realize now that there, I mean, as I did with my wife, that there were people I cared about just as much as I did about myself and, and most likely more. Um, and uh, I never knew that uh, that I could feel the love that I felt, the depth of love that I felt, and the commitment that I felt. Um, it just it just kind of blew me away. I was enraptured from the beginning with uh, with both our kids, um, and just uh, tr- tried to be as good a father as I possibly could be. There there were times when I think I I did okay. I certainly introduced our kids to to sports, and I and I read to our kids. Um, and I, I tried to kind of follow the uh, the playbook um, to make sure that our kids got a good education and were healthy and had their vegetables and all the rest. Um, <laughs> it, uh, I mean, I think it's it's like what a what a lot of fathers go through. But uh, I think something you discover and it just kind of dawns on you is that um, your ambition to be the perfect father is doomed from from the start. Because it's just it's impossible somehow to be uh, as as good as you'd like to be. You'd, you'd want to be always kind, and you never want to be raising your voice, and you certainly never want to be caught arguing with your wife in front of the kids. But uh, I, I I failed on those fronts on 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 some occasions, and there were times when there was disruption and um, there were misunderstandings and. Um, so I think the the kids, um, I, I you know I think they I think eventually it it all it all worked out. But um, but uh, it's it's an education to be to become a father. It's uh, I, I I did not seem to um, I, I needed some some time to to figure out how to make sure that it fit in with everything else and to to give the our kids the the time that they needed and the attention and the affection um but uh, i think at this point uh, i i dare say they would say that i i did a respectable job and and i i can live with that i'm sure they would i i learned a tremendous amount about myself when i became a parent and and one was this business about selfishness but also the degree to which often I'm not in control of myself because being a parent gives you an image of the stark relief between what you should do and what you do do because you know what you should do. You should not yell at your kids. But suddenly I will still find myself and I'll be like yelling at my kids. And And I just will stop for a second in this kind of Buddhist way where you watch your own thoughts. And I'm like, look at me. What am I doing? How did I get here? Why am I doing this? And it just feels so natural. There you are yelling at your kids. <laughs> it's just this moment of realization that you're just really not in very good control of yourself often. And uh, I try not to pass too harsh judgment on myself when this happens. But, you know, that, that kind of moment really, uh, to me, it, it was a real revelation that I, I even my best intentions really to be a good human were just broken upon the rocks of parenthood. That's one thing I really learned. The other way I'd be interested what you hear about this is that, I, you know, I, I have an idea of how I'm supposed to mold, might be too strong a word, but guide my kids. But the, the one thing I learned is that they're little people very early. They, yes. they are not like you, and they are not like their siblings. 
They, they have independent personalities that you did not put in them. <laughs> and they are just going. And I just find this ama- an amazing thing. I'd be interested to hear what you think about it. Yeah, I think maybe one of the bigger breakthroughs I ever made as a father was just coming to accept my kids as they are. Yes, exactly. Well put. Uh, Because we all have an idea of how our kids should be, and they should be excellent students and excellent athletes, and they should be perfectly behaved and polite at every turn. Um, But then you find that, okay, your your, your kid, uh, let's say your son is... Is uh, likes to likes to make wisecracks and and uh, and happens to be good at wisecracking and you know my son because he does. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes that gets under your skin, but then you say, okay, that's yeah. that's Michael, that's Michael being Michael, and yeah. and he's brilliantly funny. And our, our daughter is like Michael in a, in a, in, a, in one respect at least in that uh, they're they our kids are stubborn and and so for a long time I, I just saw it as resistance resistance to change resistance to advice um, but then I just came to realize that I would be nowhere without stubbornness right. and most people who've accomplished anything would be nowhere without stubbornness and stubbornness if it's if it's if it's in the service of of persisting at something that might bring some good, that's that's an attribute to be prized. So coming to accept your kids as they are um, and, and cherishing it and just relishing every moment of it, um, that that was that was kind of a big a big moment for me yeah. uh, coming to realize. Yeah, I, I, I still am kind of in the middle of it. I know that I have my son Isaiah plays hockey. I never played hockey, so I mean, I also coach him in basketball and some things. But you know, he and I are, let's say, stylistically very different athletes. He he likes athletics enough, where I was kind of fanatic about it. But I still find myself. You know how sometimes you hear about these, like, oh, a soccer father or a hockey father, and I'm like, I'm not like that guy. And then I have thoughts that make me exactly like that guy, <laughs> and I I can't I can't get away from them very easily. But he has his own thing that he does. He's an independent personality, and the persistence and consistency of that personality is just something to behold. I don't think I put it in him. It's just him. That's the way Isaiah is, and I I think it's great. I enjoy spending time with him. I do. I really do. But. It just was a really fascinating thing to me to watch that. And we're we're running we're running out of time, but there's really something I wanted to, to last question I wanted to talk to you about because we talked about this in the pre-interview, and I just find it fascinating. Is there was a long period of time in your life when you didn't really communicate to your family, and I had a similar sort of long period in my life as well. I'd like, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I mean, I'll give you the gist of it. I, I felt. To a certain extent, marginalized, shunned, shunted aside, um, a sort of black sheep. And it was interesting because uh, I think our whole segment of the family felt like that, both on the maternal and and uh, paternal sides. And by that, I mean my mother, my father, my sister, and I. Uh, we were kind of the black sheep. And uh, maybe it had something to do with my parents being deaf. Maybe there were other factors but at any rate, I just I felt wronged. I had a, a sense of being uh, just um, unjustly treated, and so uh, in in my 
characteristic maturity, I I pouted about it. I pouted about it, and I I kind of slinked off, thinking that okay, now I'll punish everybody <laughs> by excusing myself from the room. Right. They'll miss me terribly, <laughs> and they'll all spend 24 hours a day wondering why, what's wrong with Bob, and did we do something wrong, and so on. And it was just, it was unbelievably foolhardy. So I broke away from my family. I broke away from my mother for a time. I broke away from uh, my uncles and aunts and um and 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 it went on for in the case of my mother ten years, in the case of uh, some other family members a little bit longer, and I really thought I was doing myself some good. I thought first of all I was protecting myself from further injury, um, and, and and without quite realizing that I was now inflicting a new injury on myself, mm-hmm. namely complete alienation from my family. And and also I thought that I was kind of teaching them a lesson. They would they would get to better understand and appreciate me now that I was out of the picture. Um, and so I broke away. And and it was and I I in retrospect I mean uh, and so for a long time I asked myself Am I doing right? Is this is this a mistake? Um, and I never stopped debating that question uh, until finally I decided this just no longer feels right. I mean, I'm now I'm now getting older. Uh, my relatives are getting older. Nobody is going to be here forever. If we're going to resolve this, I think we better start trying to resolve it soon so that we can be a family again. And so I started reaching out, and uh, there was a Thanksgiving uh, in, in 2013 where I went down to Florida, and we had a kind of reunion with a lot of people. And before that, I reunited with my mother, and we reconciled and became on, became on good terms again. And, um, and so uh, it brought me a lot of peace to, to have made that effort and to have uh, succeeded at it. Of course, it's never perfect, uh, even after you do that, um, because once the the break is made, something kind of stays broken, and you never can regain the years lost. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, a pity of a dimension that's beyond anything I can measure. Um, that's just that's just a, a shame. And, um, but that's sometimes how it goes. And if you learn from it, then maybe you'll be the better for it. Yeah, I think that's right. That was very eloquently stated. I I know that I felt a lot of the same things when I sort of broke off contact from my family. I held a really deep resentment that I had somehow been wronged or misunderstood. And if that wasn't kind of patronizing and superior enough, I also did feel like I was teaching them a lesson and that they would horribly miss me, which I don't think they really did. But I, I, um, I, d- I did feel those things. And I felt very like justifiable anger. That's the expression that comes, that I, I felt justified in doing these things. And in hindsight, I just wasn't justified in doing these things. And it was, a, in my case, it was a species of selfishness because it just meant that I didn't have to do a lot of things that I didn't really want to do anyway. And uh, it, it was kind of an excuse for my own solipsism. And, and, that, and it, yeah, and you don't get those years back and you don't get that time back. And, and um, again, I'm reminded of Siddhartha, whose own son has to go through everything he goes through. And I don't know if, you know, I always wonder, Bob, if 
I tell my kids this, then they won't do it. But I kind of think if I tell my kids this, it won't matter <laughs> because you kind of have to go through it. And yeah. Well, that's an upsetting thing. It, yes, it, it's. I, I can imagine nothing that I would take as a greater threat than that. Yeah, well, it would uh, be terrible. I mean, I know that I tortured my mother before she died. I tortured her by not contacting her, and uh, I'm very ashamed of it. And I don't. Uh, I tortured her, and it was just uh, in, it was inhumane, is what it was. And um, and my sister reminds me of that every time I talk to her. <laughs> As yeah. well, as she should. <laughs> I know what you mean. I mean, you can be you can be plagued by these memories, and uh, I mean, I remember I had gone a long time without talking to my um, paternal uh, grandmother, my father's mother, and I called her one day out of the blue, and and she was so happy to hear from me. I mean, her voice cracked. Uh, she 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 was no doubt crying at the other end of the line or about to. Mm. She was just, and I, I could hear it. Mm. I could hear how happy she was. And, and it hurt me so much to realize that she was that happy because I had failed to call her for such a long time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's, that's again, that's well put. That's quite a story. So, well, uh, thank you very much for talking to us today. We have a traditional final question on the New Books Network. We ask everybody, or at least a lot of us ask this question, and that is, what are you working on now? Do you have something else you're doing there at the writing desk, or maybe something else? I don't know. I would like to write more books. I would like to do memoirs in particular. I'm certainly going to keep doing personal essays, but I'm interested in writing um uh, at least a couple of couple more memoirs in particular. One would be based on a blog I had called Letters to My Kids. Uh, for some time, I wrote, uh, I kept a journal, uh, handwritten, in which I wrote letters to my kids about their upbringing and about my life. And then I gave them those journals as a Christmas gift. And eventually, I turned it into a blog in which I was calling on other parents and perhaps mm-hmm. grandparents to do as I had done and to write letters to their own kids and try to preserve personal family history for future generations. So I would like very much to try to develop that into a book. Um, the other, uh, w- one other idea I have is to, is to chronicle my career in public relations uh, because I've had uh, some interesting experiences with some colorful clients and colleagues, um, celebrities and Fortune 500 CEOs. And I, I think it would be uh, among other things, a good opportunity for me to kind of tear away the curtain on on public relations without being scandalous about it, uh, and and say this is how it works. This is the field you've all heard about because the truth is I've worked in PR for 27 years and I have yet to come across all that many people who really have a sense of what it is. And indeed, a lot of people will say, so PR, that's like advertising, right? Or so you're in the media or something like that. And um, and so uh, I think uh, it would be interesting t- for people to understand just how int- integral and instrumental public relations is, um, particularly in, in getting the news out, in that we get the news before the rest of the world gets the news, and we get to be the ones to call the reporter about it, uh, and then it winds up... Um, 
in the newspapers and on TV. So, so I'd like very much the opportunity to do that and to kind of uh, address the struggles I went through making the transition from journalist to public relations professional. I never thought in a million years I was going to go into PR, but it became, uh, I needed to become gainfully employed. PR was a practical uh, option for me. I was able to transfer a certain set of skills from one profession to another. Um, and so, uh, so, so there's that. And I, I think I have an idea for yet another memoir, but we'll see because I think my daughter may have the better story, um, on that front. And I'm, I'm going to concede that to her if that's what she wants to do. Mm-hmm. Well, those sound like terrific projects and I wish you uh, the greatest of luck with all of them. And, you know, when they're done, uh, call me up and we'll interview you again. Okay. Thank you so much, Marshall. I really appreciate it. All right, good. Well, let me tell everyone who's been listening to this podcast. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And today we've been talking to Bob Brody about his memoir and collection of essays and vignettes and episodes, as we've called them, Playing Catch with Strangers. And he's done a lot of that. A family guy reluctantly comes of age. Bob, thanks so much for being on the network. Thank you, Marshall. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely.